Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you not from the Australian Centre for Public Awareness of Science, but today from our own living rooms. It's our very first recording of the podcast over Zoom. I am your familiar stranger for today, Jodie Lee Tremba. Together with my fellow familiar strangers, I've got, oh, well, on my Zoom screen, I have Julia Brown below me. Hello. Uh, I have Alex DeLoya sort of on a diagonal to my left. Hello there. You're just to my left. That's super weird. And to my right, I have Simon Theobald. I'm in the middle. Wow, positionality, people. So before we dive into today's discussion, I just want to give a quick shout out to our Facebook chats group because they are on fire this week. If you haven't joined our Facebook group yet, please do because we would love to have a chat with you. For now, let's get on with the show. I'm going to start us off today with what I've been thinking about. And I have been thinking about imagined communities. When we talk about imagined communities, we're talking about specifically Benedict Anderson, who wrote a book in 1983. And he basically argued that the nation state is an imagined community because the only thing that really holds us together as a nation is our capacity to imagine what other people who are part of that same community are like and that we have something in common with them. And that kind of got me thinking about what that means, particularly right now when a lot of us are at home and our lives are online so much of the day. What does it take to build an imagined community? Who are we as a nation? If we're also interacting online with people from all over the world, does nationhood become stronger or actually weakened by that? I don't know, what do you think? I think there's a couple of interesting things here. I'd have to go back and find it, but I believe the etymology of nation, just the word, not nation state, just nation, actually kind of just means a group of people sharing like similar characteristics. It's something like that. And I think what's interesting firstly about the digital age, and as you say, it's sort of been written on, is that the geographic space in some ways is starting to mean less. And if you had have asked me before this all happened, what would all this social isolation and quarantine mean for the nation state? I would have said, well, it just would have been even reduced it a bit more. People would have found more commonality online, blah, blah, blah. But I think from an Australian perspective, something, at least for myself, really interesting has happened. And it's really emphasised the federated nature of Australia. So a bit like the US, Australia is technically a federation of separate states, each with their own laws. Now, our laws are much more homogenous than the US. Each state is not as independent as the US. But in this crisis, things are looking very different in each state. And maybe I'm very aware of this because I'm in the ACT, my parents are in Victoria, and so I'm really keeping abreast of what's happening in both, as well as Western Australia is basically going for a bit of wax it, and they're cutting themselves off. Tasmania, as the front cover of one of the newspapers said, they've got a moat and they're not afraid to use it. It's been an interesting reminder that Australia is a federation of states, and I think we are starting to think a little more at the state level rather than the Commonwealth level. This is really interesting 
to me thinking about the identification that happens at a state level when on the other hand I feel like there's a a more of a global connection happening at the moment in light of COVID-19 and I mean what I'm noticing in reaching out to people online and identifying with different people and those perhaps COVID shield communities or whatever we want to call this new shared sense of working through this together is that it's got me out of just focusing on Australia or Victoria where I am at the moment. So for me, it's kind of expanded my identity. So would you say then that you're able to imagine yourself as a member of a global community? I think more so than perhaps I was before. Yeah, I would say that I feel a responsibility to follow up on what's going on in the world. Like I I do feel like we're all in this together and it's a bit of an experiment which government is handling things better. Simon, thoughts? I think the degree to which one feels that one is a global citizen is ironically dependent on which country one lives in. So, I mean, for me, this has actually really solidified is how much the world is still composed of nation states, how it's not really a global community of people with like necessarily mutually shared values, et cetera. You know, I mean, nations were scrambling to get each other's stockpiles of materials and so on, personal protective equipment and so on. And in somewhere like, I hate to do it, it's my field site once again, but in Iran, the country was a relatively early victim. I mean, it's now nowhere near as bad as places like the United States or Italy or Spain, etc. But it was relatively early on a quite a bad trajectory. And I think that the the fact that the US imposed further sanctions on Iran during the crisis kind of just reiterated how much countries were still countries, how the crisis didn't make any further sense of kind of global solidarity and calls for the US to lift sanctions against Iran met totally deaf ears. Uh, and the people have said, you know, the reason why the pandemic became so bad there early on was in part because of this lack of access to globally circulating PPE, etc. While we're talking to Simon, Simon, why don't you tell us what you're thinking about this week? The question, I guess, of what I was wondering about this week is this question of freedom. And so most of us, I think it's like 3.4 billion people around the world now are now in some kind of enforced self-isolation. It made me wonder how we position this idea of freedom as a kind of natural human state. So there's a lot of stuff in particularly kind of Western history and this kind of progressive move from authoritarianism towards liberal societies that has become the kind of teleological narrative of the West. The idea that we're gradually becoming more and more free. And then, you know, it was Rousseau, the quote that the idea that man is born free and everywhere is in chains, puts forward this kind of idea that humans are naturally free agents and that they are enslaved by totalitarian systems that are unnatural. But I was, not that I necessarily believe this myself, and I certainly think anthropology has done a lot to help us reconsider the idea of what constitutes naturalness and unnaturalness, freedom and unfreedom, etc. And in the context now of all of us being trapped might seem like kind of too much of a stretch, but we have some element of being quarantined in our own houses. How do we reconceptualize this notion of freedom now that many of us in the West who are used to normalized, naturalized understandings of freedom, reinterpreting this concept? I think that this has been a really good opportunity to appreciate the small freedoms that we all have in, you know, being able to slow down and make ourselves a cup of tea 
to still choose the foods that we want to eat for the most part when we do step outside occasionally maybe to do some grocery shopping we don't take that for granted anymore and so i think it's really going back to these basic freedoms but are we still are we still valuing freedom i mean for me in some ways what this is kind of testified is that the social good of staying alive is ultimately more important to us than our freedom, our personal, inverted commas, liberty to go out and about, socialise with who we want, et cetera, our freedom of association and so on. And there was some commentary, I don't know if you guys saw in the United States, where people were saying, you know, that there shouldn't be these restrictions, we should sacrifice ourselves on the altar of the economy, you know, and, and this is a particularly kind of, I would say kind of American way of, of kind of structurally positioning things. But this idea that freedom itself was of such a value that we couldn't possibly put it away in favor of the prospect of saving lives. Whereas in Australia, I think we've come to the conclusion that we can sacrifice our freedoms. It's better to do so rather than continue to be free in inverted commas and to have oodles and oodles of deaths. Yeah, I think there's two things going on there actually. On the one hand, I think that, yes, what you're talking about is sort of an extreme version of Western individualism. And as an Australian and also as somebody who probably leans more towards a socialist way of thinking, I have no personal problem with the idea of sacrificing my personal freedom for the greater good for a temporary period of time. But the second thing there, I think, ties into what Julia was saying, which is maybe we are also redefining what freedom is and what freedom looks like. Because I know for me, somebody said something on Facebook the other day about introverts. Check on your extroverted friends. They are not okay. They have never lived in a world that wasn't made for them before. And it has just stayed with me because for the first time in my life I feel like I'm living in a world that is just perfectly designed for me so my freedom my personal freedom has increased enormously because the social pressure to leave the house and attend things is no longer there which has been incredibly liberating for me so my my whole definition of freedom has changed through this experience of being at home So I think there's a point to be made that if for a minute you think of death as like the ultimate unfreedom, like it is the one thing that happens in your life that you have no choice to not do it, then even if you're sacrificing some freedom and choosing to stay at home, you're still kind of maximizing freedom. Like you're still maximizing other people's ability to literally keep doing stuff. And so with regard to Simon's question, I guess that means, yeah, even sometimes when we try to get away from like freedom and individualism, it still can kind of crop up its head from a different perspective. Damn freedom. Because I was trying to think, this has sort of reminded me of some work by Saba Mahmood that I haven't read for a long time. So please, if I butcher her work, forgive me. But she offers a really interesting critique of Western liberal feminism, by kind of saying that the idea of you have preferences and likes and dislikes and abilities before society kind of happens unto you is a bit of an artificial Western construction. And it's not so much that you're an individual and society happens to you, you are constructed through society. The old structure agency debate. Here we go again. (laughs) But what it makes me wonder is, could I, in the very literal sense, as somebody who has been constructed in this environment imagine what a society would look like that where freedom in a very like 
broadly conceived sense of the word. Could I conceive of what that would look like? Hang on, what, say that again. What? In the sense of, so I think I'm saying that no, despite anthropology's critique of freedom being quite Western and not as universally shared as a lot of academia has always said, we haven't escaped that. But then what would escaping it actually look like? And could I even imagine that? as somebody who was, you know, born, raised and shaped in this environment. Do you want to say anything to wrap it up, Simon? I'm sure we can talk about freedom and unfreedom in a special podcast sometime. Unfreedom. Uh, that's what I'm going to impose right now by saying, Julia, what are you thinking about this week? Okay, so a little bit of context about what I've been up to since I was last on the show. For the last four months, I've been working with the palliative medicine research group through the University of Melbourne. I've been based at St Vincent's Hospital and the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. And this is actually my last week because I've taken up a postdoc in bioethics at UCSF, which I'm hoping can still happen in one way or another. Uh, But (laughs) needless to say, I am not flying to San Francisco this month as planned. (laughs) But I'm very grateful to have had the exposure to palliative care research efforts, even more so at this quite extraordinary time. What I've been thinking about is how this is actually a really good time to talk about the realities of death and bereavement and how people fear it, either in regard to COVID-19 or generally. But my anthropological question for you guys today is whether or not you think that one benefit of this current pandemic experience is that it might start to normalise the appreciation for the existential and ethical dilemmas we face individually and collectively. Well, can I ask whether any of you have been having those difficult conversations with your families? Like, are you talking about what your families want if they do end up needing, you need to make decisions about whether to turn off life support or anything like that? No, I think that there's still a big level of denial of those kinds of realities that need to be worked through. But I am finding that I'm certainly more comfortable talking about the fact that I've been working in palliative care, for instance, as a topic of conversation, talking about the building of temporary morgues that the government are facilitating at the moment to deal with the expected increase in deaths over the coming months. You know, these kinds of things make people feel uncomfortable most of the time, but now it's in everyone's face. I'm just wondering whether this is the beginning of maybe having those more difficult conversations about, yeah, end of life treatment decisions. I mean, my family, we did have that conversation, but we've always been, I gather, more on the blasé side about this sort of thing than most other families. So So what is it you think that makes you so blasé? Like, what is it that would make your family more comfortable? Short answer is bugger if I know. I'd love to have some really good structural reason or like... It's families full of zombies. Everyone's dead. (laughs) Yes, actually, we don't Ah. fear death because we've been there and come back. No, um, I'm not sure. We've just generally been a bit more like, you know, death happens. It's literally unavoidable. I think we fear death too much. And I think this is what Julia sort of said in a lot of Western society. We've pushed it away too much. We don't really deal with it as a reality. I think you actually touched on this earlier, Alex, when you said that death is the ultimate unfreedom. 
because I thought you were going to say death is the ultimate freedom. It releases you from all of your earthly shackles, right? So if, if there is a perception in Western society that death is an unfreedom, then, well, no wonder we're afraid of it. I have two thoughts on this. Firstly, I don't buy the argument that Western societies are particularly any more afraid of death than any others. There was a study done that, that said that actually the people who are most afraid of death are those who are agnostic. So people who have a very strong idea that they're either going to heaven or, or maybe hell, who knows, or people who firmly believe that there is no afterlife are the least likely to fear death. Those who are equivocal, who kind of shift between the two, are the most likely to be afraid. Can I just say one thing though, is I don't understand this quest to embrace death for me. None of us know what's going to happen after we die, but it's a big old place that everyone seems to go to and they don't report back from it very much, if at all, ever. So for me, that kind of raises the question of why this need to embrace death? Why not just celebrate what we have while we're here? I feel like sometimes the focus on like fear of death is almost beside the point. It's not like how do you feel when you're looking down the barrel of a gun, but how comfortable are people around talking about it? Like, it's not the death itself, but it's like how does society, what are the cultural practices around death that I think are quite different? And on that note, it must be time to turn to a less COVID-ish topic. So let's end on a not lighter note, because I don't think you're, you're talking about something right, are you, Alex? Just, not really, I'm afraid. Yeah, just not specifically that COVID-ish. So tell us, what are you thinking about this week? So what I've been thinking about, it is COVID-19 related, but hopefully we're not going to stay there long. We're getting lots of these sort of quasi-feel-good stories about, you know, the dolphins are back in Venice, there are goats running through towns, nature is returning, this is what happens when people go away type stuff. Then there's the counter-movement that I've seen a fair bit online that are like, no, 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 this isn't when people goes away, it's when capitalism goes away. And I think there's a truth to that because you know a lot of pollution is the result of a certain crazy hyper production that we've been engaged in for more than a century etc etc but my fear about when we blame capitalism is that sometimes blaming capitalism or those big ideas like capitalism is a bit too easy like these critiques are written by often young lefty people on their macbook pro living at home doing their stuff from their phone etc etc and so my concern is is sometimes those big ticket items too easy to critique and it really discourages us from perhaps looking at our own lives and what we're doing what do you guys think yeah i think that's why we get into anthropology right because those totalizing ideas basically allow you to abrogate responsibility up and up and up and up until it just dissipates into the ether and then nobody is taking responsibility whereas when we do our studies we go down to the the ground level of how something like capitalism is manifested in people's daily lives and if we can see that then maybe we can make suggestions about how things can be done slightly better for that group of people rather than assuming that there is the possibility of a broader fix that's going to mitigate an entire ideology. For me, there's a question here of, of kind of scales and you're right to critique the overarching, these kind of meta-narratives of capitalism does X and socialism did Y and so on, because obviously there were socialisms and there are capitalisms, but at the same time, there is a kind of, in the same way that, you know, there is some kind of relationship between these structures as well. Like, it's not like we can't talk about capitalism as a kind of phenomenon at all. It still does exist at a broad level in the same 
way that it exists at a micro level. So then to prize that a little more apart, how do we ensure a concept like capitalism, a really broad concept? What pieces of advice do we have to try and keep a term like capitalism as a useful meta-narrative rather than it just descending into capitalism is all the bad economic stuff I don't like? Well, I think it's important to look at how a combination of so-called capitalism and so-called socialism is operating at the moment. I mean, we've got a conservative government in Australia, and yet they are still recognising the need to not only protect citizens by getting us to self-isolate, but they're providing for their citizens by giving income support, which is more generous than it's ever really been. And unless their government is willing to step in like ours is right now, it's an absolute disaster. Like in South Africa, for instance, the whole country is in lockdown and yet the government is not providing for anyone. I guess I'm just thinking about the ways in which our current situation, it's not that socialism is saving us and that capitalism is the big baddie that has made everything crumble. It's about the fact that a bit of both are still needed right now. Yeah, because I don't think it's true to say by any stretch that capitalism has gone away. Like going back to your original point, Alex, where it's the absence of capitalism that's making the dolphins come back to the canals in Venice or whatever. Like capitalism hasn't gone away. So I'm, I'm confused by the premise. I don't think capitalism's going away, but I think in some ways this has revealed the kind of fundamental inconsistencies in the economic projects that we've had over the last 20, 30 years in particular, and this notion that if you just let the free market, whatever that is, come down from heaven, mana-like, it will solve everything, has been completely debunked by the crisis because what has saved societies has been massive government intervention. You know, the free market didn't provide us with enough PPE. It didn't provide us with enough of the kind of critical infrastructure that we needed for societies to survive. It's been governments that have mandated production. It's been governments that have mandated closures. Yeah, I guess what I was trying to highlight is it's not about switching from one to the other. And we would be in a terrible situation like South Africa is at the moment if our government was not willing to step in and take what might be conceived of as socialist measures. But it's not to say that we're just switching to a socialist system. Not yet. Well, on that fairly uh, ominous kind of note. <laughs> it wasn't ominous. It was Not yet. Sounded like the end of a Star Wars movie. On that note, we are going to finish up. I would like to thank Simon Theobald. Thank you. Alex DeLoya. Thank you very much. And Julia Brown. Thank you. And I've been your host today, Jodie Trembath. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producers are the wonderful Deanna Cato and Matthew Fong. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please, please, especially right now, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash thefamiliarstrange. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. Got a really interesting series going on on the blog at the moment with various analyses of COVID-19. However, you will, by the time you listen to this, we will have a new one up. It's just about emojis. And I really need that lightheartedness right now. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at familiarstrange.com. Tweet at TFS Tweets 
or look us up on Facebook. Our music's by Pete Dubbo. And special thanks today to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep talking strange. Bye.